Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. I'm your host, Troy, my pronouns are he, him, and joining me, as always, my co-host... Yay, I'm the one they call Ed. I'm sober this time around. I have just pure elder brain juice to make up for the fact that my long rest was interrupted. Yeah. And today we're going to be talking about the Forgotten Realms. Which, ironically, I didn't forget because it's probably the setting that I have most used for D&D. Yes, it is perhaps the most detailed and definitive setting of Dungeons & Dragons, and is, you know, quite well remembered. There have been so many setting books and so many novels published in it that uh, it is more detailed than some, like, actual historical events and such. It is easier to find information on the Forgotten Realms than to find information on uh, certain nations. I will say I am still a Planescape supremacist. Well, yeah, I I like Planescape and Spelljammer more than Forgotten Realms, but uh, we're going to talk about Forgotten Realms today. But before we do that, we have a segment on this podcast called The Week in Hobby. Ed, tell me about your week in hobby. Oh, boy. Uh, it's not been super productive. I've spent most of the last week in an existential downward spiral. So I've pretty much been playing Magic. And that's about it. It did make me realize how much I actually do still enjoy Magic. Uh, there's a lot to be said as far as criticisms for, like, complexity creep. Uh, for the last couple of sets that have come out, there are essentially no just blank cards, and not even just cards that have, like, one effect. They're starting to stack up with multiple effects and long text chains that I have to stop and read every time somebody plays, which is kind of annoying. Um, I don't really know how you fix that from a design standpoint, other than kind of nuking everything and starting over like they did in the early 2000s when they moved to the, quote, modern format, which has the different card frame. And they basically just said, you can't use anything that doesn't have the new card frame in it. And they've also been moving very, very fast with how products are coming out and the settings and the ideas that they're putting forth are interesting, but they're not sticking with them for more than a couple of months, which is very frustrating. Um, It used to be they would have, they would do a block and a block would go about a year where you would have your intro set where it kind of introduced the setting, all the various players. You had a second set where, you know, the conflict in the storyline kind of ramped up and then you would have your final block, which would close it out. And then depending on the year, sometimes they would do kind of just random blocks that would come out at the end of the year that weren't really connected to anything, but they needed to fill time. But so far in the last couple of years, we've had a setting that's based on Norse mythology we had one that was um, basically a Harry Potter ripoff, which eh, I wasn't a super fan of. That one we will talk about at some point because it's a D&D setting as well. That is true. Um, they had a D&D set that came out, which they actually did follow up with. The most current set is Baldur's Gate themed, but I don't know if it's specific to the alchemy format, which is kind of a online computer specific format of magic the gathering and if it's not then they really fucked up with their branding because alchemy is a very specific card format um they've had kamigawa neon dynasty which is like a cyberpunk update for the old kamigawa setting rather than it being feudal feudal japan now it's now cyberpunk japan and it had like cool mech cards and stuff like that And then they have um, one of the most recent ones is called New Capena, which was based on 
uh, New York in the 1920s. And so it had a really cool art deco style and you had like union guys and union busters and like fat cat uh, captains of industry as your villains. And then there was another one that took place all at a vampire wedding. And so they have these really cool ideas, but they're not really giving them enough room to breathe, especially the idea of like the passage of time in the magic realms. Since you have one, you have two of them now, Kamigawa and Kapena, which are in theory more technologically advanced than just your regular fantasy setting. But I also don't know if they're trying to kind of experiment a little bit with the flavorings of Hearthstone since Warcraft has, uh, I wouldn't call it necessarily a fantasy setting anymore. It takes a lot from both sci-fi and steampunk and a little bit of cyberpunk stuff. So Hearthstone has a big mix of genres. But, dudes, you got to slow it down. I want to see more Viking Magic the Gathering. It's just, it's moving too fast. Yeah, I can understand that. And that's pretty much all I did this week. You played some Go. Yeah, but I don't feel like that's newsworthy. That's pretty much a given at this point. It'll be newsworthy when I win a game, which I'm playing somebody else online. It's taking forever, but they're doing some weird stuff that I'm not quite sure what they're up to. So we'll see how that one goes. Yeah, I'm also playing in another Go game, so I think I'm probably going to lose that one. I, I don't know. It's it's early still. We'll see. We'll see if I can fight my way through. Uh, my weekend hobby was... Stones. My weekend hobby was pretty much what I normally do. My D&D groups met. We did their things. Uh, the group that's currently on a jungle expedition managed to sneak their way through the city. They kind of got discovered when one of them trying to, like, climb up a thing rolled a one. Just, just rolled a nat one on his thing. After previously rolling a nat one to swim and starting to drown, um... He had to have one of the other one of the other characters like swam over and just rescued swam him to the shore, um, which was pretty entertaining. But then he later rolled in that one near a guard and made some noise, and the guard came over, and the party used banishment to make the guard disappear for a minute, <laughs> uh, which meant that no one had seen them. But that guy just suddenly disappearing with a pop. Uh, was enough to, like, draw more attention to the area. So they all fled, but the word was out after that guy reappeared a minute later that um, there were intruders in the city. This so isn't they, working how I thought it did. I mean, it was a pretty... They did a pretty good job sneaking through the thing I had set up for them. Um, I set up I a I feel really... like if you're doing an extended sneaking sequence like that, you need to get some of the... Uh... Uh, sound effects from Metal Gear Solid for, like, being discovered and drop those into Roll20. Eh, we're not really using the sound on Roll20, so it, it wouldn't work that well. I've only ever used the, uh, the Wilhelm scream. Yeah, we do all our sound through Discord, so... Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know how, uh, all that works through Discord. Yeah, me either. I'm not sure if Discord has a soundboard. I will look into that, perhaps. Um, in any case, they managed to sneak through. They found the, like, main temple that they needed to get into. Um, deciding that discretion is smart, they snuck around the side and found, like, a little cave entrance in the volcano. Um, went in through there. There were some, like... The cave had some pools of, like, boiling water, you know, yellow, volcanic hot spring kind of stuff. Uh, they fought a couple of guards inside there. They found a door, and they found that the door had to be, like, had a password that was the name of the, like, guardian of the temple, which none of them knew. <laughs> um, and, and they, they tried the elvish word for friend. Uh, I think one of them might have. <laughs> um, but this was in Draconic, so it wasn't, you know, and, and actually 
they found the door. They tried some things to, like, push, pull, like, unlock it. And then they found a note saying, like, you idiots, the password is just the guardian's name. I don't want to have to explain it to the new guards again. The username is admin and the password is pass. Yeah, essentially. Um, so then one of them, like, used disguise self, went out and, like, found one of the other guards and was like, hey, you've been assigned to the this place now. Come with me. Um, and that's basically they managed to get that person back and get that person to tell them the thing and then just shoved them into the boiling water pit and murdered them. Murder. Um, so that's essentially where they're going to pick up is entering the sanctum, entering the like inner section of the temple where the guardian is like lives. Um, they haven't gotten a long rest, which is going to be fun because they're about to face a black dragon and that's going to test some of their resources. Don't do it. You're going to be fatigued just like me. I don't think they're going to be fatigued, but they're going to have a lot fewer spell slots than previously. Because um, they've used them. The ranger was using his on Pass Without Trace, and then the cleric was using theirs on stuff, and yeah. Uh, my other group... What did they do? Oh, they... They're fleeing the wrath of the Lich, Lady Ilmaro, and... They made it to the settlement of Gatherhold, where they, you know, bought some supplies and got some stuff, and then um, found, like, an agent of the Order of the Emerald Claw who was tailing them because they had gotten instructions to report any movement of people coming off of the ship that the players are on, because the players didn't bother, like, altering the name or configuration of their ship, so um, it's going to be Sir, pretty... it's moving. Like, it. they left the name that they got painted on the side there. They haven't changed anything about it, so anytime they arrive in a thing, there's going to be an Order of the Emerald Claw person who reports that this ship has arrived, and that will get back to the Lich. They're, they're not doing the sneakiest thing they could. Or to, um, uh, to quote Blues Brothers, it's that shit fox dodge again. Essentially, yes. <laughs> um, they turned the tables, they captured the person, they did some interrogation on them. The person was not a good liar. And so, like, I made some, like, very obvious bad lies up for the, for what they, like... Oh, yes, I work for the King of Breland. Oh, what's the king's name? I don't have to tell you that. You know, stuff hey, like man, that. Hey, man, lying is hard. My boss once told me I was a bad liar. She said it was a good quality. That's nice. Um, and then they decided to make that person walk the plank over the lake, mm -hmm. uh, which worked great up until, like, they the person was on the plank and cast command. Ordering party members to dive. Interesting. Um, so that they would jump in the water as well. Um, this caused the Warforged in the party to jump into the lake, where they promptly sank to the bottom. <laughs> um, I mean, Warforged doesn't need to breathe, so... Yeah, no, he, he, the thing was, he sank to the bottom and then was kind of stuck there... While well, the party figured out how to get him out, which involved uh, tying some rope together and basically dropping an anchor down for him. <laughs> um, but this did buy the cultist enough time to swim far enough away that they couldn't just shoot him. That's uh, the pretty Emerald funny. Claw guy. Yeah, it, it was pretty fun. Uh, almost got, like, the artificer to jump in the water as well. Um, which would have been another great little move. Just make a boat. Um, let's see. Uh, after that, they traveled through the Mornland, where they had some psychological trauma after failing will saves, because the Mornland is like that. Uh, it's then, terrible. It's not great. Yeah, I'll say that much. Then they um, investigated some spooky light 
like flashes of light from an old battlefield. There seemed to be coming from a lantern held by a warforge that was standing there. They went Don't down, they started investigating the Warforge and found out that it was dead. And then the living spells that were causing the light attacked. Yay. Uh, so there were a pair of living burning hands and a living lightning bolt. Which living lightning hurt them pretty terrifying. bad. And, and the party was just like, nope. Got back in their little uh, like runabout launch thing and just fled. Because uh, while they could have taken... The things in a fight, they did not want to. They were like, no, that is a, a lightning bolt that just attacked us. That that doesn't seem like fun. It's terrifying. Don't want and it. And that leads them to leaving the Mornlands and being on the way to the next place they're going to stop and get some supplies and start trying to contact people about fighting this lich. And that's my Fight it like a boss. So, the Forgotten Realms. I remembered it. Yes. As I said, it's possibly the most detailed setting of Dungeons & Dragons ever created. Forgotten Realms, uh, also known as Faerun, which is the name of the continent that it is mostly set on, was originally designed by Ed Greenwood, who used the setting uh, as the basis for his own games, before he started publishing articles about it for Dragon Magazine in the late 70s and through to the 80s. This, like, depth of setting material that he already had interested the people running uh, TSR, who wanted a setting that was more flexible than the sort of standard epic fantasy of Dragonlance. And so they contacted him and got him to put together some books, and in 1987, the Forgotten Realms campaign set was released. And novels set in the same universe started coming out in the same year. Uh, interestingly, R.A. Salvador, the author who would do the most famous novels in the setting, and the ones that tend to end up on like the New York Times bestseller list, had the first book featuring the Dark Elf Ranger Dritz de Worden come out in 1988. 1988 is also when the first video game set in the Forgotten Realms came out. Uh, Which Pools one was of that? Radiance. Hey, I've got that one. Yeah, so pretty much immediately the campaign setting was a massive multimedia blitzkrieg between adventure modules, setting books, novels and video games there have been i think more than 200 pieces of media set in the forgotten realms that's a lot so given that the setting has an incredibly detailed history and like events as time has passed from the late 80s to now events that have taken place in the books in the modules and the stuff has, like, built up so that, you know, various things have happened. So there's a lot of history from multiple editions of Dungeons & Dragons, from libraries worth of books, and an entire Steam wish list of video games. So rather than, like, try and explain every single one of these, I'm just going to say there have been a lot of events, wars, collapsing empires, dying gods, magical plagues, and other such things that, you know, you can use to provide an interesting background for a dungeon master to set your adventures. Uh, it's worth noting that the current year of the setting is 1496. So and they should have just discovered a new world somewhere. I think they already have. Because there is a, like, Mesoamerican jungle zone. Uh, Chult is the name of it. Oh, yeah. Um, For some reason, I thought that was in uh, Eberron. That's Zendrik in Eberron. Same general idea, but to totally different places. Um, every setting has one. The general level of technology and development in the setting is, you know, similar to pre-Renaissance Europe, or maybe even Renaissance Europe, because they have a lot of guilds. Uh, you know, they yeah, don't... Yeah, feel like 
early early Renaissance, kind of like in that transition period between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Yeah. Uh, they don't have gunpowder or black powder or anything, but, you know, magic kind of makes up for that. In fact, magic makes up for a lot of things. And so you have a setting full of various kingdoms with a lot of history and a lot of them ruled by non-humans. There have been a series of elven kingdoms and a series of, like, orc kingdoms and so on and so forth um, that provide a lot of depth and a lot of places to go. Uh, the setting is also probably in it also interesting because of the Underdark, which had previously been a feature of classic Dungeons & Dragons. Um, there were adventure modules from way back when about delving into the Underdark. Uh, it, it's a feature in Against the Giants, which is one of the like classic AD&D adventure modules. And... I remember uh, some of my coworkers at my old job, they were doing a game of the Underdark and they got ambushed by, I think, Drow at the very end of it. And they managed to kill everybody except one of the party in like the first couple of rounds because they didn't have anybody who could see in the dark, which is an important thing if you are going into the Underdark. Yes, I would say that is incredibly important. Um the thing yeah, about the basically, it just ended up with him, like, sitting there in the dark, being like, is anybody else there? I can't see. The thing about the Underdark in Forgotten Realms is that it's very well-developed. It has the Dark Elf city, or metropolis, of Mesoberanzen, which, you know, has a whole society and books set in it and all sorts of stuff about it. And the Underdark is actually a place that has detailed stuff written about it there's cities there's travel areas there's you know it it's not just a ooh, there's a spooky dark cave system that runs across the whole continent it's a developed element of the setting with places to go and people to see which is it's basically somewhat, the hollow earth theory it's the hollow earth except the Hollow Earth, is, in this case, is just a series of caves rather than, like, one giant interior thing. So let's talk about some of the other cool places that you might want to go if you end up in... if you're running a game in the Forgotten Realms. The first one, the big one, is Waterdeep. The City of That's Splendors, the Crown of the North. One of the largest and most influential cities in all Faerun. Full of merchants, artisans, scholars, and more. Named for its natural deepwater harbor, the city is built where a mountain meets the sea. Also, the mountain is a former dwarven hold and currently a massive dungeon riddled with passages and tunnels and ruled by an insane wizard. Um, Terrifying. That is not a good form of government. Well, no. The, mount the, the dungeon is ruled by an insane wizard. The city itself is ruled by a council of 16. Uh, who either, are... either way, you need to unionize your dungeon because your monsters deserve equal representation. Well, I mean, yes, fair enough. Um, there's also, as I mentioned, the Underdark is important. There is a corresponding city in the Underdark located directly below uh, Waterdeep. Known as Skullport. Uh, uh, get wrecked. That's funny. It's, well, I mean, there is trade between them, uh, usually kind of shadowy trade, and Skullport is run mostly by the Thieves' Guild controlled by the crime boss known as the Xanathar, who is a beholder. Yay! And is a... One of my favorite villains. Classic villain and sort of antagonist in the Forgotten Realms setting. Um, as is the Mad Mage who runs the uh, dungeon in Waterdeep. Waterdeep has been a setting for all sorts of Forgotten Realms modules, um, including several in 5th edition. Uh, I think we have Dungeon of the Mad Mage and um, Waterdeep Heist and a few others that are like start in Waterdeep and then you go off and do some other things. So, Waterdeep is big, Waterdeep is important, 
It has all sorts of interesting features beyond, you know, the ones I mentioned here. There are walking statues. There are various guilds and organizations that call the city home. It's a great cosmopolitan city-state that you can set an adventure in, and you don't even have to leave the city walls. Here's a, here's a good question for you. Is, was Waterdeep considered, like, the primary city, or is that Baldur's Gate, or did Baldur's Gate just kind of show up with the popularity of the video games? Show up with the popularity of the video games. Um, Water, Waterdeep is the, like, the big city. Um, if I was making, like, a U.S. comparison, Waterdeep is New York, and Baldur's Gate is... Boston? Baltimore? You know, it's another city on the coast, but it's a much lesser one. Uh, Seattle? Nah, I, I want to say like an East Coast city because it's got all the like shenanigans going on there. The history and stuff. Hmm. Probably not Seattle. Baltimore would be maybe, maybe the best choice. Um... But let's go to the other side of the continent and talk about some bad guys. Fae. An evil nation of powerful wizards located in the east of Faerun. Ruled, by, uh, ruled originally by the Red Wizards and more recently by a powerful necromancer and also lich. Fae endlessly pursues magical knowledge on the back of rampant slavery. The, yeah, they are the designated evil nation. And they're not evil just because we say they're evil. They're evil because they're wizards who have no sense of right and wrong and enslave everyone around them. Also, all the undead that they raise. Uh, they probably could have conquered all the neighboring countries if they really wanted to, but they are too focused on internal politics and backstabbing. Much like the Dark as, Elves. As fascists tend to be. Yeah. So think of them as sort of fascist wizards that do a lot of slavery. They're bad guys for a reason. And it is kind of nice that they're not... One thing I'll say about Fae... Uh, one thing I'll say about Faerun, before we go any further, is that I very much enjoy that most of the nation-states in it or at least in the central continent, are not obviously based on a specific real-world culture. Um, they may pull elements from a certain real-world culture, but they have enough history and enough complexity to sort of stand on their own without just being like, oh yeah, this is a fantasy England, or this is a fantasy Scandinavia. Yeah, and like even even like the sword, the sword coast area that's kind of a blend. You've got like little bits of Renaissance Italy and England, Central Europe. It's all it's just the planet put into a blender. Yeah, I don't know where I was going. With it's that got metaphor. enough of its own stuff that it doesn't feel like oh, this country is just a knockoff of an existing country in the real world, which is a problem with certain other settings, uh, Greyhawk. Mm -hmm. Um, it is, however, notable that once you leave the, like, central Faerun, the, like, main continent, and look at the stuff that's on the edges, that kind of breaks down. Uh... These kingdoms to the south are very much fantasy Middle East. The kingdoms across oh, the ocean yeah. are very much fantasy Asia. The continent of, uh, Chult is very much fantasy Mesoamerica. I retract my previous statement and accept cancellation. I mean, Faerun itself is pretty good. It's just the, the like, around the edges, they kind of got lazy. Orientalism strikes again. Yeah. But let's talk about some of the one, some of the other places within Faerun. Icewind Dale and the Ten Towns. Yes. My favorite. It's a frigid frontier area full of glaciers, icy lakes, dark forest, and hardy communities. It's a setting for multiple adventures, um, most notably the current 5th edition Rime of the Frostmaiden module, which certain people in this podcast are playing and or running. 
Yep. It's a it's a good place to set a campaign if you want to have a lot of wilderness stuff, but also have villages and towns that are sort of linked together via road network. They can talk to each other, but they're also competitive with each other. Um, and they're not even necessarily like separate towns in the book. They just re- refer to it as Ten Town. Yeah. So it's technically they consider it like one one city because they're all close enough that they're generally within a day's walk, but they're also competitive, kind of like, I don't know, boroughs in New York, separate but part of the same city. Yeah, I mean, it's more of like a confederacy of small villages. Yeah, there you go. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff. There's history and, like, ancient crap that's been left behind by previous civilizations, uh, which we'll mention those briefly in a minute. Um, but yeah, Icewind Dale and the Ten Towns region is a good frontier area for sort of classic fantasy adventures, if you want that sort of thing. Um, and again, it's very, it's quite detailed, and it doesn't draw exclusively from any particular existing culture. So you get sort of Northern Europe, but also a very general Northern Europe feel. Like yeah, they, there's like there's they, little bits of like indigenous culture, little bits of Scandinavia, Canada. Yeah, it it's a nice mixture of things. Um, the next one is Cormier, located in sort of the dab smack in the middle of Faerun, known for its militaristic tradition of the Purple Dragon Knights. It's I've got mer- the best price at the side of Cormier. The like. It, it, it's a major mercantile nation with a strong tradition of, like, military service. And it also has a requirement that all adventurers working in the kingdom be licensed. Nice. I can get behind licensing. It's one of the few exercises of uh, government power that's probably a good idea. Yeah, Cormier is generally kind of the, like, good knight tradition, good aligned knightly country. Um... But their like their location means that they're surrounded by countries of varying types, and that they have uh, you know connections all over the place. So it, it's a interesting place to set an adventure. Maybe more so as like a you start in Cormier and then set off to do to go to somewhere that's a little more dangerous. Um, also, I believe the town of Hap is right right nearby. Hap! That's an in-joke from about 20 years ago. Uh, yeah. Around 20. That seems about right. Yes, the, the town of Hap is very important. Um, and then there are the sort of historical nations. There's two of them, or two that I'm going to talk about, and they are Mithdranor, which is the, like, ancient, elvish, golden age kingdom that Everybody's like, wow, those were great. Um, I would compare them to how Renaissance-era people felt about the Roman Empire. Um, and the, like, what is it called? The Nerthil, which is an ancient land of powerful wizards that um, had floating cities and stuff and were all well and good until they pissed off the goddess of magic and or somebody else and their whole kingdom got destroyed and they kind of got they, they were not so good they were a little evil just don't piss off the gods it's a good good way to go and some of their cities got banished to other planes and then eventually came back and became villains and they they have a whole lot of history and also same with myth drenor sometimes like Elves tried to rebuild the city or the ruins of this ancient city of elvish magic you know, was infested with monsters, or this, or that. Basically, these are two ancient civilizations, one good, one morally not quite so great, that morally form the basis of the, like, oh, you found some ancient relic? It's probably from one of these places. And so that's kind of the interesting places. So let's talk about some of the interesting people and organizations. Uh, the first one is the Harpers. 
You hear you you familiar with the Harper's Ed? Yep, I recognize no? them. The Harpers are a good aligned semi secret organization that fights evil, often through assisting or employing adventuring groups. For me, the Harpers are basically just there to offer Dungeon Masters a way to push a plot forward. Because you can have this helpful dude that gives players the quests they need to, you know, advance the plot. Or gives them advice. Or offers them a place to hide. And when players know that that person is an agent of the Harpers, they are going to trust them pretty much immediately and stop trying to, like mess with your plans by being like, can we really trust this NPC? Maybe we should do the opposite of what they said. <clears throat> He's a Harper. Stop it. And and the guy will flash a little Harper pin and they'll be like, oh, okay, I've heard of the Harpers. They're good guys. And speaking of the Harpers, among their founding members was the wizard Elminster. Elminster. I can't remember any of the Elminster quotes from uh, Baldur's Gate now. Yeah, I don't think I saw those. Elminster is Faerun's Merlin slash Gandalf equivalent. He is an ancient and powerful wizard. He's often used as a DMPC or plot device. He has a whole series of books just about him. Um, he is a chosen of the goddess of magic. One of the founders of the Harpers. And he basically goes around doing whatever he feels like, um, often to protect the world or to protect, or to protect the city he makes his home. Um, he he's your classic powerful gray bearded pipe smoking wizard. Uh, I I wouldn't use him in a game of my own because I there's too much backstory for him, but. His existence is useful. If you want to explain, like, why something is there, you can say a wizard did it, and if people press further, you say Elminster. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, we have perhaps the most popular character from the setting, Dritz Doerden. Oh, boy. The good-aligned Dark Elf Ranger, and, like... who oh boy, he's the reason that people he's perhaps the most famous drow he is the star of 30 plus novels and is the inspiration Jesus. for a million misunderstood edgy dark elf characters and probably the reason why dark elves are a playable elf sub race in modern editions of D&D &D. um he's a dark elf ranger who works for the good guys and fights with two swords and has a magical panther and yeah i i have not read his books i'm i haven't either yeah i'm neutral on dritz to Warden. i'm guessing he's chaotic good of course he is like half the people i've talked about so far are chaotic good um lots and lots of chaotic goodness in faerun uh, Faerun, interestingly, I think, takes the notion of chaotic good as being the best alignment. Which is yeah. different, I think, from some of the previous ones where lawful good was the best alignment. But that might also be because, well, Faerun's publishing started in the late 80s through the early 90s, where some of the other ones, you know, were published in the early 80s. Might just be changing attitudes there. Uh, but then, other famous people. Volothamp Gedarm. A human adventurer and explorer. Known for writing guidebooks. Many of the books... Oh, wait, is this Volo? This is Volo. Oh, I didn't know his full name. Yeah, that's his full name. He... Many of the books describing the setting are said to have been written by him. Sort of as an internal thing. Uh, currently in 5th edition, there is Volo's Guide to Monsters, which is a book, you know, about monsters, and which has notes from Volo in it. It's written kind of from his perspective. Uh, Volo's an interesting guy. He, you know, adventurer, explorer, 
Uh, he writes guidebooks. He's he's a fun one to include in a campaign because he can just show up and be like, hey, I'm writing a guidebook. Could you guys do me a favor and go get some samples of a thing for me? Or Fetch quest. Yeah, he gives fetch. He can give quests. He can help out players if they, like, need information about something. And he's just, you know, fun guy. Um, does weird shit. He can show up anywhere because adventurer and explorer. And, of course... He does what he wants. Yeah, uh, and he's been integral to some of the uh, video games as well. He shows up in a number of them, usually in, like, a bit part. But in some cases, the, like, starting narration is his, and it can is implied that these events of the video game are from, like, a book he's writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, we have a fan favorite... From the video games, and now from comics as well, Minsk and Boo. Minsk! A dopey ranger who suffered a head injury, and his miniature giant space hamster animal companion. Um, he's a big guy with, like, a purple tattoo and a hamster that he calls on whenever he needs um like guidance on what to do um he's just kind of silly he's um shown up silly is good in a bunch of stuff he's silly he he's just a fan favorite people like minsk and boo i don't have a whole lot to say i i don't know his total story but if you're listening to this podcast you probably already know who he is Maybe. Maybe they're more a board game fan. In any case, those are some of the big people of Faerun. There are a ton more. Like I said, there have been like 200-ish novels and video games and stuff. So there are all sorts of famous people and characters and important NPCs that you can scatter throughout the world. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head because there's just too many of them and i don't want to keep going on about it uh so yeah that's faerun the most detailed setting in dungeons and dragons history perhaps you know a very strong one and also one that i wouldn't set a game in interesting elaborate on that like i said there's too much content and I don't know it as well as I would need to, and I don't want to read a hundred novels to know it. And I would worry that I would have someone in my campaign who has read a hundred novels and would get upset when I say, as you're walking down the road to this country, a dragon appears. And they go, what? But there's ancient magic set on this country that causes all dragons to explode when they enter it. Like, there is too much stuff in the setting for me to run it game there. The polar opposite of the rules lawyer. The lore lawyer. Yes. I I would... There's too much lore for me to be comfortable setting my own story there. Um, Need less lore, more data. Trust data over lore. And don't use contractions. Yes. See what I did there? Yep. Um, so yeah, there's too much lore, and I don't want to have to learn it all, so I would much rather set my game in a setting that is has less total overall content. That's honestly one of the reasons I like Eberron, is that there have only been a few books about it, and a lot of them say, okay, this thing is here. The reason for it is left up to your discretion as a dungeon master. Do what you want. And that same sentiment has been expressed by the creator of that of the setting, Eberron, uh, in his blog, where he will talk about details and stuff, and also will usually say, so in my games set in, in the setting, this is what's going on. In your games, it could be one of these things. Or something different. Which is a sentiment I very much enjoy. 
makes it a lot easier to run a game if the dungeon master can just pull setting details out of thin air. I am the master of this dungeon. Um, that being said, some people prefer very detailed settings because they don't... Maybe they aren't as good at just pulling details out of thin air. Maybe they have an easier time when they can reference a book and see that, yes, this city has a population of 10,000 and 50% of them are goblins. I'd prefer to just make that up. Um, I'm not a super picky player, so I have no opinions on DMs just pulling stuff out of nowhere. Yeah, well, what are your opinions on Faerun? It's fine. I like Icewind Dale. That's a majority of what I like about it. I don't know why. It's just my go-to. It's also just whatever I think about when I think of standard D&D. It's just Faerun. Yeah, I mean, it was the sort of standard setting for a long time, and I think still is technically, so people like Faerun. People are familiar with Faerun and the deities of Faerun and the NPCs of Faerun. And there's nothing wrong with that. Unless you don't like spelling Faerun all the time. With the weird little thing over the U. Yeah, I don't know what's up with that. Uh, it's a trick to try and make it seem more exotic. Oh. I mean, that's that's entirely what's up with that. So that's been the Forgotten Realms, which, as we mentioned, are very well remembered. Yep. So now we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner, and today we're talking about The Resistance. Uh, Woo! Which came out in... 2010 by Indie Boards and Cards. Um, the Resistance is a very simple uh, secret identity co-op game. Um, essentially, you play as a group of Resistance fighters, except certain members of you are secretly undercover spies. Uh, so each round, a certain number of Resistance members have to go on a mission. Uh, this is selected by the current leader of the Resistance, who, like, assigns people to do it. The entire group gets to vote on whether or not these people should go on the mission. And then if the vote passes and they go on the mission, they play cards, like yes or no cards. And if there is a single no card, uh, these cards get played face down, shuffled around. Revealed, if there's a single no card, which can only be played by the, like, spies, then the mission fails. If a certain number of missions fail, the Resistance loses, the spies win. Um, so essentially, the Resistance goal is to identify the spies and then complete, I believe, three missions. Um, and so, you know, there's a variety of things. There's ways that you try and figure out, oh, this person went on two missions and both of those missions failed. This person is clearly a spy. Um, stuff like that. It, it's basically just a pretty much social deduction, hidden identity kind of game. Rounds are quite quick for the most part. I don't think I've ever played a game that went more than 30 minutes. And it can hold, uh, what, five to ten players easily? So it's a good party game. Party. There are expansions that make it a little more complicated. They add, like, secret... They add, like, specialist identities and other elements that you can do to, you know, make the game more interesting if you want. But I'm fine, for the most part, with just the base game. It's quick. It's fun. It doesn't require a lot of tokens or a lot of... Um, dice or anything else it's just you know hidden identity social deduction bluffing who's secretly a villain sort of thing plus nice. you know you get to take down an evil empire if you win so that's always fun always good the resistance highly recommended also it's a small box so it's cheap good thing to get someone as like a gift i've done that more than once 
And that is a podcast. As always, thanks for listening. Uh, play some board games. Uh, follow us on social media. We are at Knoll Country on Twitter and Knoll Country on Instagram. Uh, we'll post more stuff there, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I've been forgetting to post post weird stuff. Yeah, and I've been forgetting to post normal stuff. Uh, Ed, anything you want to plug? Uh, you can see me at Anna Madness on Instagram doing stuff there occasionally. Uh, make sure to uh, go ahead and buy our No Country branded Forgotten Realms Day Planner. It'll help you remember everything in the realm. It'll keep you from forgetting it. It's important but because if you wanna... the Realms uses a 10-day week calendar and, you know, we've designed it with that in mind. It takes a little bit of getting used to. Yes, it does. But if you want to spend your money on something that actually matters, uh, go ahead and support any charity that supports LGBTQIA plus people, uh, anything involving reproductive justice or the Ukrainians. Uh, you really can't go wrong there. Or both. Why not all of them? Yeah. Assuming you have the cash. It, it's a gun buyback program that sends that ships the guns to Ukraine. I mean, my rifle would fit because it probably spent the last 80 years in a salt mine somewhere in Ukraine. That's nice. Yep. I mean, I guess that gets, means that when you use it, it's very salty. No, just it's just covered in cosmoline, and if the rifle heats up enough, cosmoline starts to leach out of the wood, and it gets kind of greasy. That's gross. I don't want that gun. <laughs> I don't want I don't want guns that leak grease from the wood. It's haunted. Yeah, you've got a haunted, haunted rifle. The, it's haunted with the ghost of the Soviet Union. <laughs> I mean, there is a specter haunting Europe, so that makes sense. Nice. And as always, go Knowles. Go Knowles. <laughs>